And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. We're going to be returning to what has been such an exciting undertaking and meaningful undertaking by the theater department at Carthage College, something called the Verbatim Project, which has uh, been manifest in in several different exciting ways. And most recently, uh, a performance that is going to be coming up on the 20th of May, a single night in which one can experience what's being called the Kenosha Verbatim Project, a play by Kenosha residents and others about what happened and what happens next. That subtitle is really referring to the summer of 2020, to the shooting of Jacob Blake and to uh, all of the pain and unrest which that incident uh, unleashed uh, in the community of, of Kenosha. And the Verbatim Project is seeking to uh, shed some new light on that incident and its aftermath and uh, the state of the community of, of Kenosha at this point in time. Lessons learned, lessons still to be learned. Uh, with us is Martin McClendon, uh, who is professor of theater at Carthage College and uh, really the guiding hand and driving force behind these uh, various verbatim projects. And we have two Carthage students joining us as well. Uh, Raven Kraft, who is a senior music theater major and uh, a minor in, in women's uh, in gender studies. And then a sophomore, uh, Catherine uh, Leyendecker, who is a theater uh, performance major, English major, double major with a creative writing emphasis. She is a sophomore. And both of them involved in this uh, undertaking, again, called the Kenosha Verbatim Project, with a performance coming up uh, this Saturday evening, May 20th. This is not a ticketed event, free and open to the public, first come, first serve. And we hope a lot of people will make a point of taking in what promises to be a very powerful evening of theater. So a warm welcome to all three of you to The Morning Show. Glad you're here. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Thanks so much. Professor McClendon, before we start talking specifically about what's going to be happening this coming weekend, maybe you could sketch for our listeners uh, a bit about the history of the Verbatim Project. Uh, when and under what circumstances did this begin? Sure. Thank you, Greg, uh, for the time as well. Um, we started in about 2015, 2016 uh, as a SURE project, that's a summer undergraduate research project with a student named uh, Laurel McKenzie and I investigating the war in Afghanistan. And at that point, we'd been at war for 15 years and I felt like we were just, it was dropping out of the headlines and people weren't paying attention to what was happening. Um, and so we interviewed about a dozen uh, folks who had served in Afghanistan and that play really uh, launched the, the whole the whole thing, the whole ball of wax. We, you know, learned as we went about how to do this, how best to interview people, editing things, and so forth. And and after that, uh, and starting, you know, it began with student leadership, and it's been maintained all the way through. You know, um, verbatim the verbatim plays give students a chance to really get their, you know, uh, get into the process of playwriting um, in a really hands-on way. Um, and so we've done shows mostly about the veteran experience, then about female veterans, and also recently about uh, frontline healthcare workers during COVID. Uh, and each one of these is a lengthy process of interviewing people, going through those transcripts, putting them together, cutting them down to a manageable size, 
and uh, kind of trying to put together the themes and and create a narrative too. And so these are all skills that our, our students then are learning uh, as they as they go forward with, uh, you know, and, and no, no more so than in this uh, piece where we have two students working on the script with Professor Carroll and myself. So explain to someone who's never been to one of these verbatim performances, the way in which this does not quite feel like uh, a so-called normal play. Uh, I mean, what kind of, I mean, you, you've, I think, called it a play at one point. In, in what way is this a play, but in what way is, for instance, what we'll see Saturday night, not a play maybe in the most standard sense of the word? Well, also uh, important to notice that we it's a staged reading, so uh, it won't be fully staged and costumed and all those sorts of things like some of our verbatim plays have been in the past. Um, so we're going to just be reading the script uh, you know, uh, without any of those other production values. But in any case, whether it's a reading or whether it's a fully staged play, oftentimes the dialogue in the play is more between the people in the play and the audience, as opposed to between the characters in the play. And so the audience is there to listen and learn and hear amazing stories that maybe they didn't have any idea may have happened, you know, hearing some slices of life that uh, otherwise would have not ever been known um, sort of, you know, very, and some of them very personal stories as well that maybe haven't been ever told before. Uh, and so there is a lot of that. There's not as much dialogue as there is storytelling. It's almost more like an oral history type of event. But nevertheless, we also try to put a narrative to it. We have a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? There's a timeline of the kind of questions that we ask and when we structure the play around those questions so that we do have a flow to the evening, right? It isn't just sort of random people talking about random things, but it sounds when we put it back together, the aim is to make it sound like a conversation between about a dozen people in this case, as if they were all coming together in a room and they were distilling all their comments to the most dramatic and you know impactful things. So it's fair to say that what we're talking about here is, to a very large extent anyway, a work of nonfiction versus fiction. Yes, yes. Um, and some... Sometimes it's called documentary theater, too, and we do have a little sprinkling of some sources taken from news reports and things like that that we're putting in for context. Um, and in terms of, you know, we take people at their word. When we interview people, it is not our business to, you know, in any way censor them or somehow pass judgment on what they're saying. Uh, we, we simply are there to listen and then to take those words and to edit them into um, a more distilled version of their their testimony. Let's talk to our two students for a moment about uh, just in a very general way. I, I don't want to dig yet into the specifics of this particular story, but in a more general way, tell us, uh, Raven and uh, and Catherine, about uh, your participation in this and uh, what the process was like. Who wants to go first? Yeah. I'll go first. This is Raven. So I think, hi. Um, in the beginning, I think we really, um, we created like this Google spreadsheet and we started putting people in the list and organizations that we thought would be 
helpful to the project that would want to speak with us um, that would have a lot to say about the events of 2020. Um, and this ranged from people in the community. We had um, a few people outside of the Kenosha community that we talked with just to get that wide range of perspective, which was really cool. And then after that, we started reaching out to them. Um, we gave them this uh, kind of just standard consent sheet just telling them what the project would be and if they would like to be a part of it and if it's okay if we use their words in our project um and then after that we started just doing the interviews they all were over zoom um which was very un a unique process too because usually when you're doing a project like this i feel like you would talk to them in person but over zoom um we did them all over zoom and then the editing process probably took the longest. Um, I feel like when you have 13 interviews, it, it doesn't seem like a lot. But when there are hour long interviews, that's a lot of words you have to cut. <laughs> um, so so that was a really um, a challenging process in a good way. Um, I think we definitely learned how to condense and how to um, just go through this process of transcribing and editing and cutting and like Martin said, putting together a story that has this narrative when it seems like, um, you know, everyone's talking about these different things. We really had to tie together uh, one story. So, Catherine, anything you want to add to that? I mean, Raven said most of it best. I will say something that was always fun was getting together with Raven occasionally to be like, so who have we emailed? Who hasn't emailed back? What do we do about this? Because a lot of that was on us. Martin would say, okay, here's your job for the week. And we'd have to do it. So we'd get together and try to figure some things out and send out all those emails, which was always a ton of fun to do because we'd sit together for like two hours just emailing people or re-emailing people, figuring out dates and times and all that. So it was a ton of fun. Tell us what prompted you to want to be part of this. I mean, I assume this was not assigned to you or imposed on you. It's something you you chose to do. Uh, tell us a little bit about what prompted you to want to be part of this. And and maybe along with that, at, at the point you accepted this opportunity, what did you even know about Carthage's verbatim projects from the past? Raven, let's start with you. Absolutely. So I was actually a part of my first verbatim play as an actor at Carthage when we did Fighting for Home. Um, that one centered around the stories of women veterans. And I think I ever since then, I've just been kind of obsessed with verbatim theater. I'd never done anything like that um, in my acting career thus far. So just doing that and just the perspective that verbatim and documented documentary theater gives you is very very unique and that's what I loved about it um and then during COVID actually I had a chance to be part of kind of a, a virtual-esque uh, production of the Laramie Project which um was my second verbatim theater show which I loved um and like I said I just think it gives you a very unique perspective on how how theater can be and how stories can be told. Um, and I really loved that. So when I heard that I was doing another one um, from a playwriting perspective, I was like, I would love to do this from the other side and kind of be part of this team from the other side of theater making. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what really drew me in. Excellent. Catherine? 
Yeah, so with my theater performance and creative writing emphasis, the goal for me is to be a playwright. So reaching out to me with that in mind, I thought it was really, really interesting to try and get that perspective of playwriting that I had never had before. For me, I had no experience with verbatim before this. It was completely new. I knew about the Laramie Project, but that was about it. So something else that Martin did is he kind of taught us about the basics of verbatim and where it all came from. And it really like opened my eyes to this new form of playwriting that I had never even considered before because I was always under the impression that, you know, plays are fiction and they're a narrative plot. And instead we made something that is kind of nonfiction, but maybe does have a little bit of a narrative plot, but also doesn't. And it's kind of created its own little thing with that. And I think it's so interesting and it's definitely something that I'd like to continue pursuing in my playwriting goals. Very good. For those of you just joining us, we are talking today on the morning show about the next verbatim presentation by the theater department at Carthage College. It's coming up this Saturday evening, the 20th of May, 7.30. It is this time called the Kenosha Verbatim Project. And this particular project takes a look at Kenosha in the summer of 2020 and beyond. And of course, it was in the summer of 2020 that the shooting of Jacob Blake occurred. And of course, widespread and painful uh, unrest uh, emerged in the, in the wake of that in the, of that uh, incident. Uh, so, Professor McClendon, uh, first of all, it in a sense is kind of a no brainer. I mean, what a marvelous idea to utilize the framework of a verbatim project to tackle this really weighty and and complex story and a very local story, of course, as well. Although one of one of many local stories, in a sense, playing out on a much larger canvas. Uh, did you have any hesitancy whatsoever about tackling this uh, in this particular format? Uh, well, a little, I guess. And I should mention too, my uh, my um, co-professor on this, Professor Nora Carroll, who uh, uh, did teach at Carthage at the time. She's uh, now in a different position at Chicago Shakespeare. But um, when she and I first started talking about this. Uh, and I'd always, I'm always looking for different things that we can illuminate with verbatim theater, you know, and having just come off the one about COVID and about um, frontline healthcare workers, I again, th looked around and thought like, well, where are there some stories maybe that my toolbox of storytelling skills, you know, I can do it, you know, I can use that toolbox to direct Legally Blonde, right, and make this amazing, you know, singing, dancing spectacle. But I can also use this toolbox to maybe um, try to bring a renewed awareness to some things again that maybe have been forgotten over the last two and a half, almost three years now since this happened. And I don't claim, and I don't think anybody in our project claims that we're gonna be able to fix anything here. You know, uh, These are really, really huge, tough problems that the community is facing. And um, in some ways, all we can do is do a snapshot. We've taken a snapshot of people's opinions, of people's truths, you know, of their stories um, that, again, in some ways highlights things that maybe have changed and other things that haven't um, or ways uh, that the that the events were perceived um, and that we just need to be we constantly need to be reminded that we have not moved past this. Right. We, we haven't fixed these problems. And so. Uh, I, I don't even remember what your original question was. Oh, about trepidation, about hesitancy, about doing this. And 
I, I, yeah, I was a little hesitant, but I think that, you know, the backing of our institution, our, of, of the theater department, everybody, you know, in the department was like, yeah, let's do this, you know, and, and again, it's just a little, you know, a little production at the end of our season here. And um, I, I hope that it'll get the conversation kickstarted again, in case the conversation was kind of plateauing out, we need to keep the conversation alive about social justice, about racial justice, um, about policing and all those kind of things. And again, we don't have a we don't have an opinion as writers. We're just putting the words out there that people tell us. Um, and so sometimes you're apprehensive, you know, how will that be received and so forth. Um, but I, I think that I'm, I'm proud to be part of an institution also that where we can, we can be that megaphone or whatever and just put those views out there, you know, uh, free speech, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so we can, again, provide that platform uh, that maybe folks don't get any anywhere else, and especially in a format that they won't get anywhere else of a stage reading. Uh, let me follow up on one thing you said just now, uh, not exactly to contest it, but to get some clarification on it. You said something to the effect that, you know, we don't have any opinions about this, or I don't, I don't think you phrased it exactly like that, but you phrased it close to that. And, and I mean, I think I know what you're saying, but of course, on the other hand, you're all human beings and indeed you do have opinions about this and uh, all kinds of other matters and so on. So, so what do you do with the opinions, with the perspectives that you yourselves each hold about various aspects of what happened and why and, and so on? I mean, uh, are those cast aside as much as possible or uh, do you embrace them, but with care? I mean, what what do you do with your own personal opinions here? Well, I think we have to go back and, and I'll let the students talk about this too, but first and foremost, in the interview process, right? We want to listen with courage. In other words, we don't want to then respond to things that are said and say, well, I don't, I don't agree with that. Or are you sure? Or that didn't really happen. Or I, I, I think you're twisted on this or whatever, right? So we don't, you know, we, we really try to be neutral interrogators, I guess, or, or, you know, participants in a conversation. And so I think that's the first step is that we have to check ourselves and check our own biases and say, I'm opening up a space here where people can just talk. And, and I'll, I'll turn it over to the students to add anything they wish to. Um, I think for me, I thought about it almost not exactly the same, but almost as I would if I was acting, because I feel like as actors, we're always told to advocate for our character and never, never make or think our character is the bad guy. Um, and so I think in the same realm of that, when doing a project like this, you never want to let your judgments or your biases get in the way of giving someone else the stage and giving, handing someone else the mic. Um that's the way I thought of it. Um, no matter what my opinions are, I think uh, I joined this project because I wanted to give those a voice who who may not have had a voice anywhere else. So to let my own uh, personal opinions and beliefs get in the way, would I feel like would be a disservice to them and to the project. So that was Raven. Catherine, you want to add something on that? Yeah, I think what's also so important is that we're letting somebody else's words take center stage. 
So whether or not we're the ones editing it, putting it within the script, it's still what somebody else thought. And we're never in a position where we want to make it seem like they said something else or something that they didn't really say. So their words are taking center stage and we're just the ones who put it in the script. Very good. So as you began this, uh, I'm sure you all came to it also with vivid recollections of the, the kind of the central events as they unfolded. Uh, by the way, Catherine, where are you from? Are you from southeastern Wisconsin? I'm from Nebraska. Oh, oh interesting. Okay. So I'll, I'll ask you last, as someone who presumably was not, in a sense, on site as all of this unfolded in the summer of 2020. Professor McClendon, uh, just briefly, just what are your recollections of, of what it was like, in a sense, to 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 live through those events as they unfolded and and what perspective did you take from that uh, into this project uh, several years later? Just briefly, I mean, this was also the summer of George Floyd, right? And uh, and then it happened here in Kenosha in August. Uh, we had an incident that resulted in widespread unrest, and you know, I and this is my personal opinion now coming out, right? That uh, you know, the, just the feeling of horror and the feeling of almost just so fr so frustrated and hopeless that we just can't, you know, there's so many solutions just lying everywhere that we could pick up and implement, and we just aren't to the problems of, of racial disparities in treatment of people by the police um, or uh, uh, the inherent and endemic problems underlying all of these other issues, the, the, the uh, institutional racism and things like that, that we still really haven't burrowed down and dealt with. And then suddenly it happened, you know, 10 miles, you know, three miles from where I work, 10 miles from where I live. And uh, I'll let the students go from there. Raven, what are your recollections of these events as they unfolded in the in August of 2020? Yeah, I think for the most part, I was just angry and frustrated. Um, I I feel like this is something I've seen my entire life. Um, and whether it's a microaggression or something at this scale, I think it produces the same anger inside of you and the same frustration. Um, and I think doing this project was really healing, um, not necessarily because um, I knew other people were angry, but I knew that other people had these same frustrations as I did. And it was encouraging to hear that other people were working toward the same solution and goal that I was, because I think sometimes, especially during the summer, it's very easy to get hopeless and to get, you know, kind of uh, narrow minded and just blinded by your anger. So it's it's really encouraging to hear that other people um, are just as frustrated, but are directing that frustration um, towards something, a goal in a productive way. Catherine, uh, were you in back home in Nebraska at the time that these events unfolded? Uh, and, and I guess because you're a sophomore, you weren't even yet a, a student at Carthage. So uh, did you have really any awareness whatsoever of what was unfolding at the time, or did you only learn about it later? Yeah, well, what was really unfortunate is how Carthage and Kenosha became, you know, a place I'm looking at for college to, oh, did you hear what happened there? Um, 
And that kind of like changed a lot of perspective on things because, you know, being from Nebraska, some of my family was like, well, maybe don't go there or maybe look somewhere else. But what's so totally unfortunate is another college I had been looking at was in Minneapolis in a similar area where George Floyd had happened. And then through more of our conversations, we kind of realized like, this is not something that's going away and it's not inclusive to just Kenosha. Like this is going to happen everywhere. And something kind of similar happened in Omaha during one of our Black Lives Matter protests. So it's not something that like I wanted to shy away from because I wasn't from Kenosha because this was national news and this is happening everywhere and it's going to keep happening everywhere. Hmm. So Professor McClendon, uh, sketch for us kind of the 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 strategy by which you and, and the students wanted to try to tell this story as comprehensively as possible. I mean, uh, I mean, the, it's, it's, it's really too big a story to manage that, of course, in the space of a single evening. But what kind of conversations occurred in terms of what was most important about this story? And in particular, what would be most viable for this kind of a vehicle? Sure. And, and I'll, I'll bring up uh, Professor Carroll, Nora Carroll again. So, you know, in the initial discussions, you know, before we put together the project, uh, which was a research project, also the students were here for the summer as researchers. Um, we had some bullet points, we had some goals. Uh, a lot of our goal, I mean, we have a mission statement for Carthage Verbatim Theater, which is that we want to sh- give a voice to unheard stories. Um, and so that was sort of foremost in our minds. And um, we also have somewhat of a, you know, we've been doing this now for, I guess, eight years. Wow. Uh, and, uh, and so we had kind of a formula or, or like a, a template. And the, the template sort of lays out chronologically, you know, we begin with what we call softball questions, as one of my colleagues in social work, Dr. Becky Hornung puts it. You know, you always want to ease into these these difficult conversations with something a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, softball, I guess. And and so uh, so we asked a battery, you know, we with the students then came up with a battery of questions leaving going from softball kind of to hardball in terms of, well, what do you remember of that of that time or, you know, and so forth. And the other the wild card in a verbatim project is always that we don't know what people are going to say right we have no idea what kind of stories we're going to hear about and so no matter what kind of template you might have what you then have to do is pivot toward the stories right and realize you know wow this is the direction this play is taking now you know and so it really it's an act where uh, where all four of us collectively as the editing brain kind of look at which stories really jump to the top, the ones that affect us the most deeply or the ones that are the most informative and eye-opening. And and so as a group, again, narrowing down those, you know, I don't know if it was something like 20 hours probably total of testimony down into a (laughs) 90-minute piece, uh, you really let the voices guide you, ultimately, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. What about the possibility of somebody saying things that you really find to be objectionable, troubling, maybe downright abhorrent. Uh, and, and certainly something like that is very, very possible, depending on what kind of voices you are, are gathering. But certainly there might be people saying things, believing things that uh, 
that you would find really difficult to uh, accept and and difficult to to share as as part of this project was that part of the reality of putting the Kenosha verbatim project together? Um, I was just going to say something. I think this was um, a small bump. I know at least Katie and I were having were this idea of giving people the mic and, and letting their stories be center stage. <clears throat> and we never wanted to, um, you know, cut off anyone who had a differing opinion from us. That was never, never where we were going. But we did talk a lot about um, not letting hate have a voice. That's something that we were not willing to do. Um, so just things that were just objectively hateful, we would not, we would not put into our script and we would not let that have a place in our story. Um, those people already have enough of a voice. So this really was for um, people who wanted to add to the story, not take away, I think is the best way to say it. Hmm. Catherine, do you want to add to that? I don't know that I can say anything better than what Raven did. Let's talk for a moment about the two of you and the fact that uh, the two of you are come from different places and are very different people, and and I'm guessing perhaps uh, might have perhaps played different roles in kind of the assembling of these interviews and so on. But then again, maybe not. Maybe your particular respective participations in this were created and conceived in a sense colorblind to the fact that uh, that one of you is a person of color and the other I'm pretty sure is not. Uh, did that figure at all in terms of who spoke to whom or and or the roles that each of you played in the uh, crafting of this of this uh, play? we both definitely had uh completely equal roles in it i'd say um we both talked to the same people um in the same manner we of course had i'm sure different opinions about some things and whatnot but as far as the project goes and our roles in it um they both were pretty equal um like katie said we would meet up and we would email people from hours on ends and then we would um conduct interviews facilitated by uh, Martin and Professor Carroll. Um, yeah, and our, our roles were pretty equal. Anything to add, Catherine? Yeah, I mean, during our interviews, Martin would kind of let us take the lead as far as asking questions and things like that go. Um, so that was something that was really important and special. And of course, not all of our questions were pre-planned. So sometimes Raven would come up with a question on the spot because it related to something else. Or maybe I would come up with a question on the spot. But we both had that open space to ask the questions and kind of lead what was happening. And of course, then we were the ones helping with the editing process and obviously helping with the interviews and the emails. So we had pretty equal role in everything. Mm -hmm. So this might be a good time for us to give you an opportunity to talk about particularly memorable encounters that you had um, maybe without giving too much away, but uh, what were certain conversations that you thought were maybe particularly illuminating uh, in which you came away from those conversations, having 
really learned something that you you didn't know before or or maybe caused you to think about some aspect of this in a different way. Dr. McClendon will begin. Oh, not not a doctor, no. Just call me just call me Marty. Okay. Uh, but um I want to just say too that working with Nora who is a woman of color um that I was very aware of uh not being a person of color and I really tried as much as I could to uh again not get in the way of the voices of people of color and the majority of the people in this project of the dozen who have, are now in the final draft um I believe 8 of the 12 are people of color and and so again I I was and again I don't know how how much I succeeded but I really didn't want to make this about you know a white person trying to uh in any way exploit people of colors uh own you know uh, opinions and stories and ideas to somehow soothe my white guilt or something like that um and uh you know I guess I I did my best uh and so listening to the perspective of black America through the lens of the incidents in Kenosha to me was like I mean I'm getting choked up just you know I I'm so grateful and thankful that they opened up and told their stories you know in in our interviews uh and to really try to get closer to because I you know obviously I I can never fully understand what it is like to be of color in America but I'm so grateful again that I've been given another window in order in order to try and at least identify and see what that experience is like Let's ask the students now about a couple of the most memorable encounters that you had through this interview process. I think just uh, generally speaking to every single one of the interviews we had, someone said something that we were like, that is a show stopping moment, or even that is just so like powerful and so grounding and so insightful. Um, I don't think there was one interview we had where we were like, oh, let's throw that out. Like everyone had something so powerful to say about their experience and and what they brought to the table during this really uh, hard and difficult time. Um, so I think every single interview um, was really powerful. The last the last interview we had, um, or at least the last interview in the show, I won't give too much away because we do want people to come see it. But um, I think we put it at the end of the play because it kind of summed up the play really well. Um, And I don't, I can't speak for anyone else on the team, but for me, I think the last interview and the play that we have was the most powerful one for me. Um, And I think that the audience, when they come see it, can give their own opinions about it. But yeah. Catherine? I would say that I also agree with Raven. All of them were very powerful and insightful to be through, especially as someone who's not from Wisconsin. So I got to kind of learn along the way of like what was going on and what people were experiencing, because it's one thing to see it all in the news and it's another thing to hear someone who went through it. Um, And yeah, all of them were really, really insightful for me. I think one that still kind of stands out was our interviewee kind of started interviewing us, which really changed the dynamic and she asked us a bunch of really really thought-provoking questions about 
what it's like to be black in America versus what it's like to be white in America. Um, and I was not prepared for that, but it really made me think. Hmm. Interesting. You've mentioned the fact that uh, there are a number of, pe of people of color who are are interviewed. Uh, when it came to people, not people of color, uh, who were you reaching out to? What particular voices or stories were you most anxious to include in this? I, I can take that for at least uh, the intro to this. Uh, as Raven was saying, we we had some contacts initially, and then the contacts give us other contacts, and so it sort of spreads like that. Um, and so one of our very first interviewees gave us the names of another five or six folks that one or two of them ended up, or maybe two or three, we ended up interviewing. Um, and so it was really a mix of, of uh, races and cultures, uh, you know, um, and, and again, sometimes the project just kind of goes, it has a life of its own in terms of, of that. Um, we aren't under any obligation necessarily, as Raven said, to try to bring both sides of the issue of racism. <laughs> There's one side to the issue of racism. Racism needs needs to be fought, right? There's nobody, there's no pro side to racism. There's only a con side. And so, um, you know, again, we we didn't want to give a megaphone to hate. And and so the the folks who are not of color, the white folks in the in the show again, were folks who really wanted to talk about their experiences uh, in, in, in this summer. Uh, and um, again, we have people, everyone from community leaders to just community members, uh, to members of, of local government, to folks who were right on the ground in the middle of uh, the unrest and the riots that happened. Um, and yeah, I'll leave it at that and see if the students want to say anything. Anything you want to add? One of the questions I had was, uh, in the course of trying to tell this story, did you end up talking to anybody uh, whose business was burned down or who in other ways were impacted by the violence uh, that that ultimately, of course, was was unleashed? Uh, because I think that's an interesting facet of this, but I'm not sure how easy it would have been to connect with somebody and who would have told that particular kind of story. I can just briefly say we there were a couple of names we tried to contact and and we weren't able to get a hold of them. Um, so, several of the contacts do have uh, small businesses or organizations in the downtown area. Um, they didn't get burned down, but um, you know this is one of the interesting things about this story is the difference between what happened in uptown versus the, what happened in downtown as well. Um, the way that buildings were damaged or the way that businesses were damaged in those two areas and also the response to those two areas. Um, and so that definitely is a part of the show. Um, but uh, yeah, we were not fortunate enough to get anybody whose business was directly impacted. How would you gauge people's willingness to share about this? I mean, was it a situation, I'm really directing this to the students, uh, was this a situation where People had to be cajoled uh, into sharing or, uh, I mean, in, encouraged to open up and be, uh, or, or, or right from the start, right from the moment, did people seem to be very eager uh, to, to share about this? Yeah, I think something we learned early on while doing the interviews is that they were going to vary. Some people were going to be very open from the start 
Some people needed a little, um, like Martin said, softball questions. They needed a little um, leading up to it to really get comfortable. And I think that the members um, of the community that we interviewed that were like big community members that were used to speaking in front of people that were used to sharing their story, they were maybe spoke a little bit more fluidly and were a little bit more comfortable speaking to us just because um, that's what they've done their entire career. Um, and then the community members that maybe work behind closed doors or maybe have a little less public facing job um, were a little harder, but they all got to a point where they were like, okay, this is what I want to talk about. This is what I'm passionate about. And you could always tell like when their heart just like, was super in it because they would start talking a lot more and a lot more um, comfortable. Very good. Catherine, anything to add? I think also what's important is that because we were emailing people to see if they wanted to be interviewed, if someone responded to our email and said, yes, I'd like to be interviewed, we knew ultimately they had a story they wanted to share. Otherwise, they wouldn't have agreed to the interview. So yeah, even though not everyone opened up quite right away, um, we still knew there was a story in there and that they just wanted to share it and we were that platform for them to share it. And are these stories shared anonymously or do we know the names and 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 how specifically do we have information about the stories that are told? Yeah, so when we finished the project and even before we started the project, um, initially we asked if it would be okay to include names um and we sent out a form and they could sign it and when we were done with it we sent them the final draft too to make sure that um everything we were saying was was as they would like it um and if they wanted to retract their name and become anonymous or retract their story altogether um we would definitely honor that um, so some of the people, some of the interviewees that we interviewed um, do have their names and they were fine with keeping them the same. And some of them wanted to be changed. And then I think we had like one person that just didn't want the story in it. So. Very good. So looking back, and again, I want to focus this first on the students. Uh, do you feel completely satisfied? I mean, I'm sure you feel good about it. But I wonder if when when one is tackling such an immense and complicated story, uh, do you look back on this now, on this finished product uh, with any sense of frustration that, I mean, you wish it could be longer or you wish it could be three nights or you wish you could have talked to so-and-so? I mean, uh, is there very much of that? Or by and large, do you feel mostly a, a profound satisfaction about how this has ultimately taken shape? I think because we're doing, <laughs> I think because we're doing a verbatim project, there's always those questions of, darn, what if we had interviewed this person? Or, oh shoot, we totally should have let this person talk longer. But I think if we live too long in the what ifs, we forget just how much work we put into what we did. So I think while ultimately there are certain ways we could have done it differently or ways we could have changed it, what we made is so special and unique and will obviously never be made quite the exact same way again. And because it's verbatim, maybe we'll make another play or another project. Um, and I think most of my satisfaction will come when we have our showing of it and people will get to see the work we've been putting in for almost a year now. This has been quite a long process 
And I'm really proud of what we did. Raven, anything to add? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think because of the work we're doing um, with activism and anti-racist work, uh, the work is never done. So it's it's almost a little bit hard to feel completely satisfied when you know there's more to do. But I think exactly what Katie said, um, you know, we've been working on this project for about a year now and we've done a lot of great work. Um, and I think this is a piece that will really have an impact on whoever hears it. I think anyone who hears this show can take away something. Um, so I think in that sense, we have been... Um, a part of something a lot bigger with this piece, which which makes me feel really good. Very well put. So the performance is coming up this Saturday evening, May 20th, 7.30, I assume, in Wartburg Auditorium. And, uh, and Professor McClendon, this is part of something called World Premiere Wisconsin. Can you just say a really quick word about what that is? Yes, there's an organization called World Premiere Wisconsin, WPW, which lifts up all of the world premieres we have in this state. Uh, and uh, this year starting, I think it started in April and it's gonna go till like August or something. There's literally dozens of new plays being premiered in this state. And uh, you can go to their website, just type in World Premiere Wisconsin and get a passport and it'll tell you about all the new plays going on all over the place. It's a very exciting time for the arts right now in Wisconsin. Terrific. And again, Kenosha Verbatim Project has its performance. It's one and only performance this Saturday evening, May 20th, 7.30 p.m in Wartburg Auditorium. No tickets whatsoever, first come, first serve. And we hope lots of people will come out uh, to experience this. And uh, I'm so grateful to uh, Professor Martin McClendon, to uh, Raven Craft and Catherine uh, Leyendecker for joining me as well to tell your story of being part of the Kenosha Verbatim Project. Thank you for doing this. And again, thank you for being my morning show guests. It's great to talk with you. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Thank you.